All right, so after last week, uh, a bunch of wealthy Christians decided to give us a great illustration of what we talked about with power and control. Uh, so I don't know how many of you, how many of you saw the He Gets Us ads, whether on the Super Bowl or online? Okay, so about half of you. Uh, I put some pictures in. I know they're pretty small. But the first one is a woman washing the feet of a younger girl outside uh, a faith family planning, of course that's a euphemism, an abortion clinic. And then you see the protesters in the background. And then the second one is a uh, white priest washing the feet of a gay black man. And the third one is a uh, white woman washing the feet of a Muslim woman with her husband, both of their husbands in the background. And so this He Gets Us, if you're not familiar with it, it's an ad campaign that started, I don't know if it started last year's Super Bowl or before, uh, but it's been a very uh, public, very flashy, they've spent something like $100 million advertising, trying to put forward a vision of Jesus that uh, ostensibly would appeal to the masses, right, and would present Jesus in a a fresh way, we'll use fresh, uh, a fresh way that might cause people to consider who he is and his claims. And so I've seen that advertised at baseball games, football games, Super Bowl obviously is the biggest flash. And it's the theme of foot washing. So I thought after what we talked about last week, and um, Hobby Lobby, uh, Green, uh, they're one of the main donors. It's interesting, as you look at their website, they're a mix of Christians and non-Christians, but people who are interested in Jesus, um, and they're trying to present a message. And so I thought, let's let's look at those commercials through some of the lenses that we've been using, because we're still kind of in foundation-laying mode so far. Uh, Today we're going to look at the belief model, and next week, Lord willing, we'll we'll look at, okay, what is an actual biblical understanding of abuse? So if you look at, I put the, the pericope there of Jesus washing feet from John 13, uh, just to refresh us. And uh, what, what was the tagline of the commercial? Do you remember? Was it Jesus didn't cheat hate? Right? He didn't cheat hate. He washed feet. I think that, okay. So that was the message. Right? And they're showing, there were at least six different pictures. Um, and of course, the person being washed was always one who would be considered underprivileged uh, under a sort of the theory framework. Um, so I thought, let's see if we can answer four questions from two different perspectives. So HGU obviously is who gets us. So the first question is, who did Jesus wash? Now, he gets us doesn't really answer that question, right? Kind of left unaddressed, um, but obviously they're appealing to his example. But according to the Bible, whose who's feet did Jesus wash? His disciples. Did he wash all of his disciples' feet? Depends what you mean. He washed the 12, maybe the 11. There's some, dis- some dispute over whether Jesus had left by that point or not. But he washed the 12. Jesus had many disciples. 
we only wash the flesh. That, that might be a key point of evidence. Why did he wash their feet? According to who gets this, according to this ad campaign, what do you think? What, what's the purpose of foot washing? What message comes through in these? Service. Serving. Humility. Humility. Acceptance. Anything else? Yeah, I think that's hitting some big ones. Right? It's uh, it's a very non-judgmental position. Right? He's just there to serve. Right? According to the Bible, why did he wash his disciples' feet? He tells us here in the text. So with Peter, uh, he says, "If I do not wash you, you have no share with me." So there's an there's an identification, there's a belonging to Jesus implied in his foot washing. And then later in the second paragraph, uh, I have given you an example that you should also do as I have done to you. There's at least two reasons. One is to identify his disciples with himself. The other is to, to serve as an example. Should Christians wash feet? Who gets you would say, yes, right? Absolutely. And who should we wash? Everyone. Without distinction. What does Jesus say? He says we should do as he did. Okay, so here's another question. Who has washed feet? Not not like your children, but in a religious ceremony sense. In other words, who grew up, yeah, who, who grew up Mennonite or who was in YWAM? <laughs> or both. Or both. <laughs> okay. What did foot washing communicate? I think the Mennonites usually do it like once a year. Oh, every time, every time you have a communion? Okay. Maybe it varies. What, what does it communicate? It's not quite the same as 2,000 years ago. Right? When you were all wearing sandals on dirt roads and was a lowliest servant. So did Jesus give us this? Did he say, I'm leaving you an example that you should do as I have done? Is he... He's saying, therefore, you should all wa literally wash each other's feet. Most Christians haven't seen it that way. They've seen it as an example, a principle of service, right, of humility. There's some to process. I mean, he said, I gave you an example. You should do as I have done. So you think through. magnified servanthood right. among his disciples. Right. right. If the if the Lord washes feet and he's the greatest, then he'll literally be to humble ourselves and serve. Okay? 
and then this question isn't explicit, but I think it's also allowed implicitly as a commercial, is what is love? Because Jesus didn't preach hate, therefore Jesus taught love. So according to who gets us, what is love? Acceptance. Right. I would go even a little bit stronger and say affirmation. So it's not just, hey, some of you are just as I am. You can get that at Billy Graham, right? affirmation it fits very much with expressive individualism which is whoever you decide you are we affirm you we're for you whatever you think will make you happy we want to be part of that project okay uh, biblically what is love you probably have that song what is love I won't sing but it'll be what is love, biblically? God is love, okay. So how do we fill that out? What does that mean? We have a good, it's one of those big, huge, huge words, right? <laughs> that can be hard to define. Yes, Dr. Julian. Like, worshiping what we do and then another, including whatever we do that's necessarily sacrificed. Okay. So working, I don't know if you heard, working for the good of another, including whatever sacrifice is necessary. Anybody else have a thoughts or definition on love? Putting others first. Putting others first. So is that acceptance and affirmation then? Okay. So it depends what you mean, right? I mean, I think it's true. Um, I, I, I mean, I usually use uh, dedication to the good of another according to God's revelation. So whatever God reveals to be good, love is dedication to that good for another. Which might mean uh, what the world would interpret as rejection. <laughs> not acceptance. And um, refusal. Not affirmation. all this gets involved, you see how this involves power and control and how you think about power and control. Because the model of Jesus that's being held up is completely non-judgmental, entirely accepting and affirming service. And that's a very appealing, well, it's, I, I, ironically, it's less appealing. So not only are the conservative Christians critiquing the commercial, but the progressives are critiquing the commercial. What's the point of this? And, that, and that's the whole thing. When the world, uh, it's amazing how many times, the longer you live, the more often you'll hear, if the church doesn't move on X, they're going to be irrelevant in a generation. Right? And inevitably, when the church moves on that, uh, that's the church that ends up being irrelevant. So which, what group, you know, wokeism, what group produced the most woke ad at the Super Bowl? Ostensible Christians, right? It's always the church that's just like five, seven years behind the culture. Woke peaked a couple of years ago, and then people started saying, "Okay, maybe, maybe this stuff isn't all good." And the church is like, "Wait, we think it's good. We're all about it." So it's interesting how you think about 
Jesus and power and control. You know, the split watch is basically a slogan that can be co-opted for whatever movement you want. Or is there actual content? Is Jesus doing something? I believe, I'm not 100% certain I need to check this. I believe Anglicanism uses split watching as part of their commissioning of a priest. And, and uh, this is actually, it's so if you look at John 13, look at the start there. Before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, so he, he knows my life's almost over. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Then he did this. So what's he doing? He's identifying with his disciples. He's giving them an example of service, but he's also commissioning them to go out into the world and proclaim the gospel. This isn't just a, uh, let me show you how humble I am and how much I love you. Right? Because he's, he's entirely as we talked about last week, he's entirely in control of the situation. He's leading all throughout. So. Does that make sense? Discussion. Constant in church history. Um, they use the past of progressivism and compromise as good. Constant. And, and the devil, that's one of the tools for you where the devil's primary attack. He's going to make sure that there are lots of off-ramps off of biblical Christianity. And if you're craving the approval of the world, you're going to have It takes courage to be faithful. Okay, so let's talk about the Duluth model. I've raised that a few times. It is the, the, the baseline model for understanding abuse, in, especially in America today, but I think also, as I mentioned, it's on the UN website, Western Europe. Um, it's, it's broadly utilized. And so to do that, I want to briefly just mention uh, feminism, because it's one of the really uh, important uh, historical developments and value system that's involved in this. And so. Uh, you may be aware people speak of kind of three waves of feminism. You've got kind of late 19th century into the earliest 20th century, and that those would be the early names, so the Susan B. Anthony and the Seneca Falls. and A lot of that was coming out of the massive problem of drunkenness in the second half of the 19th century. Mm -hmm. uh, there were significant amounts of abortions, actually. Marvin Olasky's book on the story of abortion of America uh, shows some of what was going on. And so uh, the m and it's, it's important for us to understand this feminism. Um, often, the problems they're identifying are real problems. Not always, but often. And it's in, this, it's in how they frame those problems and, and the solutions they prescribe that you get into problems. So obviously, if a woman has a husband who's a drunkard, that's a significant suffering. Not only is it relationally hard, but financially. He's probably not going to be diligent at work. He's probably not going to be doing well and providing for the family. And then he's spending however much to buy alcohol. And right, he, he's probably, you know, physical beatings are not unusual in that context. Uh, he's generally a miserable person to live with. 
And if you have a more patriarchal understanding of life, one of the whole challenges with abuse is it's most often private and one-on-one. And it's he said, she said. So how does she prove, how does she prove that this is going on? What is the wife who's stuck in this? And especially, you know, think about that time in American history. Maybe she's out in the middle of New Mexico and they're on a huge ranch and nobody's around. What should she do? And so the, the temperance movement arose in response to a very real problem. Massive drunkenness in America. They said, well, here's, you know, uh, alcohol is a problem. Getting rid of alcohol will fix the problem. And so that eventually leads to prohibition and the outlaw alcohol, uh, which did have an effect. It did reduce drunkenness. Right? There were some net positives that came out of prohibition. Uh, there was obviously all kinds of problems, uh, including organized crime. Pete likes to say it took the Italians to organize crime. Right? <laughs> you would have disorganized crime without the Italians. Um, but that was, that was the thinking. If we can just take away alcohol, then we're not going to have that problem. And of course, that's the human heart is quite engineering and finding ways. Related to that, there were movements for women's suffrage and birth control. And it's interesting, uh, growing up in the public school, it was taught, yeah, basically everybody in the past was an idiot, right? They didn't believe in progress. They didn't believe in equality. We're so much more enlightened now. We're so much smarter. The only reason you would deny the vote to women is because you're uh, a Neanderthal who doesn't believe that women are equal to men. And looking back a little bit, I haven't researched it as much as I want to, but it's been interesting to see the main opponents of women's suffrage were women. And they said, we don't want the vote. Because under a household vote, if you have men carrying that responsibility in the fear of the Lord, they're thinking about the women in their lives. And they're representing them, and they're caring for them. And, and so if, if that woman gets a vote, she's going to vote with her husband. The, the, the novel element you're introducing is the women who don't value that. Right? The women who want to get out from under the oppression of the patriarchy. We're going to give them the vote. And so liberation has been the overall theme of feminism. We have to liberate women from the oppressive structures of society. Right? And we do that by uh, increasing women's independence from men. That's been the drive of feminism. We give women the vote. We, uh, later on, we get no-fault divorce, which you know, Ronald Reagan was the famously the first governor to sign no-fault divorce in California, which he later uh, expressed great regret over. And the idea there is if you have a woman in an oppressive marriage and she doesn't have the proof to say, here it is, see? So the opposite of no-fault divorce, which that's all we know anymore, right, is at-fault divorce. Here's the cause that justifies me breaking this covenant. Okay? Adultery, desertion. No-fault divorce says you don't have to do that. And the theory is you make it easier for the woman in the oppressive marriage who doesn't have the proof to escape that oppressive marriage. Reality is, yeah, you might make it easier for her, but you make it easier for everyone else. 
And so you dramatically increase your voice, which is worse for everyone. To the point where uh, less than 50% of American children right now uh, grow up to adulthood in a home with a married biological parent. That's 46%. I think about that. My family would be 40%. So uh, I and my brother Brandon were over 18 when my parents separated and got divorced. My three other siblings were under 18. That's what's the most common experience in America, children not growing up in a home with married biological parents. What are the effects of that on society? What are the effects of that on generations? And one of the challenges is, is yeah, there's, there's going to, because it's a fallen world, there are going to be problems, there's going to be abuse, there's going to be uh, horrible situations. So what do we do in response to those things? Do we blow up structures that God designed so that we can liberate ourselves from those things? Or do we say, okay, here's, here's the problem. Here's, ha- here's how the Lord calls us to respond to it. We don't blow up the structure. Right? We actually hold up the structure and say, hey, this is, this is the goal. This is what we're, we want to rise to. And we punish those who fall short of the structure at when they're guilty. Uh, so things like uh, Women's suffrage, no-fault divorce, increasing women's participation in the workforce, abortion, uh, all those things were designed to uh, increase women's independence of men because it was that dependence on men that puts them in that inferior position which makes them susceptible to abuse. Okay, that's the reasoning, that's the thinking, and that's what's been driving feminism. And those values are all around us. And we, and we talked about that somewhat with power differentials. We're going to talk about it today. I have a couple categories that I think I hope will be helpful to us in that. Uh, and, and that's why abortion is the great sacrament of feminism. Because it's, it supposedly liberates the woman from the prison that is her body. Right? You, can't, you can't say you can't, you can't or shouldn't have sex. Because that would be to deny everyone the greatest happiness in the world. So you have to say, no, no, have sex with whoever you want, however you want, and let's make sure that you don't have any consequences for that. Mm-hmm. Right? Let's make sure that you kill the baby so you can, you can do whatever you want to do. That's why abortion is so highly, highly valued in, in that system. Because okay? otherwise women are, um, are tied to their biology in ways that men are not. Now in a just society, men should be legally tied <laughs> Men are never going to be physically tied the way women are physically tied. Right? That's the reality of our bodies. But legally, spiritually, theologically, ecclesially, right, there should be ties that, that recognize and rejoice in the way God made the world. Be responsible to a part of that, handle that, and enforce that. But feminism is, is uh, a key value in the abuse movement. There are also changes legally to criminalize domestic abuse. Now, the Massachusetts Bay Colony was the first, I believe, anywhere in the world to criminalize uh, domestic abuse in the 1500s. And it's interesting, if you look at ancient history, uh, 
pederasty, uh, the, the sex of children. The Roman Empire, that was very, that was pervasive. It was just, just is what it is. They called it, right, eros or paideia, sexual love, not love, but Christians called it uh, pedos horos, thropos, I forget the exact Greek term, but it's death of children. And they were the first ones to oppose this very widespread practice. And, and it was uh, in the late 400s, early 500s, that the Christian emperor of the Roman Empire outlawed it. Fir so far as I know, the first in the world to outlaw it. Things like that, Christianity has always been, right? Where was slavery in the, in the Christian West? Where does, where, you know, it was Christians who were on the leading edge of, of these things. Uh, for a criminalizing of domestic use, was undergoing some significant changes in the 70s. And so you see in 76, the PA Coalition Against Domestic Violence was the first to have success with immediate restraining orders. Right, they're saying we've got a problem of violence against women, we have to be able to do something to protect these women. So they can go and get an immediate restraining order, right, to protect them. And within five years, more than 30 states had similar legislation. And I thought this next statement was fascinating. Safety, was to this social movement what liberation was to the larger right, We want women to be safe, which is good. Let's define safety. And let's, uh, safety, safety is one of those interesting things in God's world. Because uh, I, I think our society is more risk averse than any. <laughs> and, um, we're often chasing an impossible standard. So there, are, there is always going to be massive risk in God's world, right? In a fallen world, not in the garden, not in creation, but in a fallen world, uh, there's significant risk. And there's one sense in which the Lord is our safety. He's our refuge, he's our strength, he's our shelter. But there's another sense which even with that being um, profoundly true and Christians suffer all manner of evil, all manner of suffering, right? And the only way to be entirely safe is to withdraw from the world. You, you know, you can't drive here, you can't walk down the road, you can't uh, without exposing yourself to risk. And so what you have to do is obey the Lord and his call for you to engage in the relationships and responsibilities he's given you in the effort of service. Uh, and so that's one of those interesting statements where it's, yeah, it's a woman's being abused. We absolutely want to protect her and get her to safety. But we have to think about even safety biblically. Like what, what is safety and how do we pursue it? And what standards are we willing to set up to, to try and ensure and so this um, move to make it, to, to look at uh, abuse more through a criminal lens, uh, they say our strategy was inspired by the assumption that to make wife beating a crime would profoundly alter the premise of male dominance in marriage. And th this is part of what has changed with uh, America. And this is a broader discussion that I don't really want to get into, but our, 
our, um, our penal system is uh, significantly messed up. The, the Bible doesn't really have a category of jail. You have restitution, beating, and death. Right? We say, we're going to take you out of society and put you in a place where everybody else pays for you to live and you become a much better criminal. Right? Because you're surrounded by people in this horrible environment. And, and the way that we've, you know, even though the name penitentiary, the penitent, And so, uh, yeah, what, what's the just response? So take it, I mean, just think, it, think about it. You, you've got a man who's practicing some form of domestic violence. You put him in jail. Okay, well, while he's in jail, he can't harm anyone. I mean, he can harm other prisoners. But then what? I, it would be unjust to lock him up for the rest of his life. very weird and twisty understanding of justice and society. You know, Florida recently instituted a standard of the death penalty for rape, especially children. And I suspect at least some of us think, boy, that's harsh. How do you, how do you parse that out? The Bible is, is both harder on things than we're inclined to do. But then in certain ways, it's softer on things than we're inclined to do. It doesn't, it doesn't take the thief and put him in prison. It makes him pay it back with a penalty, which actually is restorative. Gives him a path. It doesn't change the heart, but it gives him a path that he can be restored to society and productivity. It dignifies him by treating him as a responsible moral agent. You take him and throw him in prison, <coughs> you're not helping anybody. So that's, that's a huge topic to get into. But, um, but you can see that their strategy here is a, if we make this a crime, we're going to undermine male dominance in society. And there's a whole philosophy behind that we're going to get into. So. In 1980, the Duluth Abuse Intervention Program uh, were began, and that was Ellen Pence, the sociologist, and Michael Tamar, who was at that point the city council member. And what came to be known as the Duluth model was a coordinated community response, and you see that in the quote there. So the Duluth project should be seen as a system of networks, agreements, processes, and applied principles created by the local shelter movement, mm -hmm. criminal justice agencies, and human service programs that were developed in this small northern Minnesota town over a 15-year period. So Duluth was like 80,000 people. In a lot of ways, what they did was brilliant. They, they went with everybody. So they, they uh, interviewed police officers, and they went in the car with them and said, okay, let's see how 
you know, you were called out for a domestic dispute, how does that go? They sat down with probation officers. They sat down with counselors. They sat down with battered women. That was one of the best things they did. They sat down with judges, I, you know, because judges were very reluctant to throw men in prison because in certain ways they had a better understanding of justice. Is it really going to help to throw them in prison? What do we, what, what's just here? What do we do? They're trying to figure out what do we do? How do we respond to this? They bring everybody together. They, and then they work out these agreements and because they say, if you're going this way over here and they're going that way over there and they're going, right, we're not going to, we need to all work together. That's the whole idea of this coordinated community response. And so Duluth is the first place to really develop that kind of thing. And that's why I think as awareness of abuse and its effects is spreading, you start to look around and say, has anybody else dealt with this? Are there any other, you know, pro is and here they come and they say, hey, we've got our own thing, all of us. Here's the program. And we've got these graphics, we've got this education program, we've got these agreements, and you can take it and implement it in your community. And so that, I think, explains why this model has spread so pervasively uh, around the country and, and to an extent around the world. So I looked at what are the values of this group that has been so influential. And it's not, I'm not saying that especially Christians have just adopted this system uh, wholesale. They said, oh yeah, we'll just run with it. Uh, but it has very much affected it. So if you go to their website, I went there uh, 13 months ago. I assume it's the same. They have five values on their About Us page. And so the first is we listen to battered women. As I said, I think that's the best thing they did. They, they sat down with these women and said, tell us about your experiences. And everything that they developed <coughs> came out of that. Now, of course, uh, what that means is the, the moral framework and the philosophical framework that the women brought to their experience is what they communicated. And even, I think, probably more importantly, the moral and philosophical framework of the people who developed the system interpreted and shaped what what came out, right? There's there's never there's no neutrality in God's word. We're always interpreting. We're either interpreting in alignment with what God says is true or, or contrary to it. And so all these things are affected. And so, but they did listen to women. They actively engaged them. Second, we educate to promote liberation. And and one of the things I want to point out as we go through is these terms. There's so many terms that. If you mean this, yep, that's good, I agree. But if you mean that, and if you understand the philosophies under it, liberation, obviously, freedom. A lot of people think of freedom as freedom from, right? Remove constraints. Any, anything that kind of boxes us in is not free, as opposed to freedom to. Biblically, freedom is freedom to. Right? We're freed from sin in order to obey God in order to function and thrive in the world. Um, so they educate to promote liberation. And so a process of dialogue and critical thinking, which again, kind of what you mean by critical thinking, to assist women in understanding and confronting the violence directed against them. And so our efforts to challenge and support men who commit to ending violence. Third, we advocate for institutional and social change. 
So they're advocates, which means they have an agenda, right? We all have agendas. Uh, they have an agenda. They're working to change institutions and change society. So they're looking at the practices and policies of social and government agencies that intervene in the lives of battered women. And, and they very much, when they talk about advocacy, they said, look, we're standing between, here's the women, and here's you know, the government and everything else they're dealing with. We stand in between them, and we're entirely concerned about the women. Right? What can we do to help them get safety? That's how they uh, thought of themselves. It's good. Again, you can see there's a lot of good in there. Um, but they're what they're doing is they're uh, examining and addressing systemic problems by engaging with institutional practitioners and leaders in the development of creative and effective solutions. Now, if you understand critical theory, which we'll get into, you understand that that um, it is, because of just knowing their values, that is actually a very critical theory statement. Critical theory is very much uh, concerned with systems, groups of power. And they're, they're looking for where are there these power disparities, which are themselves evidences of injustice, and then how can we change practice so we address those problems. And so the group that Ellen Pence led up to her death was called Praxis International. And Praxis is a very popular critical theory Marxist word. We're all about practice, right? We're all about tearing down social structures that oppress and putting into practice something better. It becomes more explicit in the fourth point. So we struggle against all forms of oppression. Women are not defined by a single identity. Again, what do you mean by that? But live in the intersection, there's a key critical theory word, of their race, gender, class, ethnicity, nationality, disability, age, religion, and sexual orientation. So our work must also challenge all systems of oppression that create a climate of supremacy and intolerance that facilitate violent and violence, exploitation in women's lives. And so you're starting to get closer to the philosophical center of the Duluth model there. So any these systems of oppression are those that create a climate of supremacy. So wherever there's authority, wherever there's hierarchy, wherever there's leadership, wherever there's structure, that's a climate of supremacy, which means intolerance. Because if somebody has power, somebody else doesn't, which facilitates violence and exploitation. And so they're getting very close to, if you have authority, you necessarily have violence and exploitation. So we have to find those things because those things are oppressive. We need to tear them down and put an egalitarian system in their place. Okay. And then we promote nonviolence and peace. So everything that we do is basically either advancing nonviolence uh, and, and working for a culture of peace. And that's an interesting one because if you understand uh, critical theory, they have no positive vision, really. I mean, they do, but it's the most kind of generic utopian someday over the rainbow. As soon as we blow up all the systems of hierarchy and oppression in the world, um, it's going to take this massive effort and all this pain but we will somehow magically get to the liberated place on the other side where we're all equal, you know, from each, of, uh, from each according to their plenty to each according to their needs. Okay. So we're just going to all just replace equality and happiness and we're going to remove all violence and all problems because we're all equal. 
course, it would take massive devastation to get there, but somehow, magically, they get there. Uh, and that's why they don't really, that, that's the extent of their positive vision. But the fundamental vision is we want to look for inequalities that are oppressive that we can tear down. And some parts of critical theory, like decolonization, violence is part of the design. We want to introduce violence because it's disruptive and creates the conditions that can lead us to that utopian state. Right? The end of Marx's Communist Manifesto in all caps, working men of the world unite. Right? You rise up, you have nothing to lose but your chains. Throw off your capitalist overlords. And that was just with economic conditions. It's sense through critical theory spread to every aspect of society. Right? Wherever there's authority, wherever there's hierarchy, that's oppressive. And so we need to throw that off. And uh, like I said, some aspects of critical theory see violence as good. So Antifa, right? That, like the the odds that we're going to see significant violence over the next nine months are very high because we have a, a national election coming up. And there's certain groups who say if we can foment violence, if we can create social conditions, you know, maybe the violence will provoke a reaction that will lead to the government coming to, or maybe it what, or maybe it will lead to people rising up. So violence is actually a design feature in some some aspects of critical theory. So hopefully you can see that these these systems. Uh, there's generally a mix of, yeah, that's good, I can see that, that's a problem, that needs to be addressed, and okay, yeah, there's some significant agendas here that can produce even more devastation than uh, is currently in the world. So, uh, a little more explicitly on feminism with the Duluth model. So there's a quote here from that education group's book, whether the particular planners are aware of it or not, programs for batterers are situated in the political and historical context of the feminist anti-violence movement. And, and what they're saying is, um, which we discussed a little bit, is American society is structured to benefit men unfairly. So we have to establish that these belief systems operate for the benefit of men at the expense of women. The men must come to see that these beliefs maintain a system that is unfair and destructive to both men and women. And you'll see that in the wheels, right? The men need to relinquish power and control and embrace equality. Because if they don't, they'll be part of perpetuating a system that by definition oppresses women. We'll get into that more. But it's interesting because they, in the early days, they had this jingle, they say, uh, he does it for power, he does it for control, he does it because he can. That was their jingle. And then after years, they, they realized, you know what, there's some men who hate that they do it. They hate that they are abusive. And the most abusive relationships are lesbian relationships. So it's hard to blame men for lesbian abuse. And so they said, okay, maybe it's not just men Right? It's not the individual man, it's actually society. So instead of blaming the individual, you're going to blame society. And so 
We do not see men's violence against women as stemming from individual pathology, but rather from a socially reinforced sense of entitlement. So basically, men have men are privileged, they've structured society for their own benefit, and so they feel entitled, and therefore they use violence to oppress women. That's that's the philosophy. Okay. Um, I'll skip a little bit, but when we as a society decide that women have certain subservient roles and men have certain privileged roles, then we also give men the message that they can enforce those roles with whatever tools are at their disposal. And do certain men adopt these attitudes and, and therefore do? Absolutely. right? But is the structure itself the problem or is it what people are doing with it? That's where you get into the question. And so, um, and then one final quote there, the historic oppression and continued subjugation of women in most cultures occurs because men have defined almost every facet of their societies, thereby perpetuating a sexist belief system and institutionalizing male privilege. So th this is uh, kind of payoff on that, hopefully. So I want to look at power differentials, and I, this is a, a bit of a philosophical discussion. I heard R.C. Sproul uh, use this in a different context. But he talked about necessary and sufficient conditions. Okay, It's not as complex as it might sound. Uh, so a necessary condition is when you have X, necessarily Y results. A sufficient condition is um, X is part of, wait a second, yeah, yeah, um, boy, I want to make sure I'm not tripping over lines. So no, no, yep, I did, sorry, I flipped it around. A sufficient condition is when X uh, obtains and Y results. A necessary condition is you need this in order to have Y, but it's not enough. Okay, so for example, uh, oxygen. Oxygen is a sufficient, I'm sorry, is a necessary condition for fire. You've got to have oxygen to have fire, right? But it's not a sufficient condition. If it were, we'd all be dead because we're breathing oxygen. If, if oxygen was sufficient to produce fire, everywhere there was oxygen, there would be fire. Do you understand? Um, so power differentials are a necessary but not a sufficient condition for abuse. Okay. talk about power differentials. It could be physical, it could be financial, it could be relational, it could be you know, governmental. You've got to have some sort of power differential for there to be abuse. You've got to be physically stronger or financially stronger or relationally stronger in order to abuse another person. Um, 
what the Duluth model and critical theory are saying is that power differentials are a sufficient condition for abuse. Wherever there's a power differential, there's abuse. You understand that? That's what they're saying. And that's, that's the world we live in. And the flip side of that is wherever there's an unequal outcome, that is by definition the result of abuse. It's the result of an injustice. That's why they say, um, you know, group X, wh wh why are there so few women CEOs of Fortune 500 companies? It must be because of sexism. Right? Because it's, it's, it's an inequality there's a hierarchy, which means that that's a sufficient condition for abuse. So it must just be that men are unfairly oppressing women. Or why, you know, this school over here um, gets X amount of dollars, this high school, but that school over there gets Y amount of dollars. It's abusive, especially if the, the predominant skin tone of the two groups is different, and the group with the lesser amount of money is in what would be categorized as an oppressed class. Now, Vody Bauckham says that only works one way. So nobody looks at the NBA and says, the NBA is grossly out of whack in proportion to American society in black men versus white men, therefore white men are being oppressed in the NBA. Right, nobody says that, <laughs> even though Proportionally, it's not equal to proportion to the nation in the society. Right? But that kind of thinking, that hierarchy, um, you can read that, but hierarchy, authority, patriarchy, that those things are sufficient conditions for abuse. You understand? Mm -hmm. And I'm saying they are necessary conditions, yes. You, you have to have some manner of differential, some manner of disparity to abuse someone. You just do. But they're not uh, sufficient. If you make hierarchy uh, a sufficient condition of abuse, God is the biggest abuser there is. There's no hierarchy greater than God. There's no authority greater than God. And then the world he built is built with hierarchy and authority and patriarchy. And he says, that that world is very good. Now, as we talked about last week with the big theology of power and control, because of the fall, sinful men and women take the powers that we have and use them selfishly to exploit others. And that's right in you know the curse to eat. Your desire will be for your husband. 
like a sinful desire. But he shall rule over you. Probably a sinful rule. It, it's interesting that those verses are highly debated uh, on interpretation. But right at the core of our relationship as men and women in the fallen world is curse and oppression. And in the relationship, men uh, as a whole, physically, are 60 to 100% stronger than women. That's a massive hierarchy of physical power. How do men tend to abuse women? With physical power, with size, with harshness, anger, things that are, are physically dominant. Right, there's a power differential there. And if you say, therefore, we're going to fix abuse by getting rid of that power differential and making men and women equal. Well, A, it'll never happen. Because you can't overcome nature. But B, you remove the source of strength that God built into the women, or into the world. Why did God make men stronger than women? In part, to protect them, to provide for them. And so in, in seeking to eliminate the power differential, uh, this kind of approach emasculates men, which increases their frustration, increases their sense of hopelessness and aimlessness. And we're seeing that especially with young men today. There's a whole, there's some uh, ungodly influences online and who are offering these young men a, a, a vision of power and strength that is mostly selfish and destructive. And women are a means to an end. Right? These pickup artists who talk about, you know, the best way to get a woman is to insult her and then she wants to prove herself to you. Right? Like that's vicious. That's wicked. But this this is important. Does that make sense? So the, the graphic I put in here is, don't flip the graphic around. I, I'm confused here. So what I'm saying is hierarchy, authority, patriarchy, those things are inescapable. They're how God built the world, and they are a necessary condition for abuse, but they are not a sufficient condition for abuse. That gets into when you think about justice, because what justice says is if someone has more power, uh, under critical theory, when they think about justice, if someone has more power, they're, they're basically guilty. If there's an accusation made, they're basically guilty. A and, um, well, well, we'll get to that. But does that make sense? Any questions on that? There's a couple really important applications of this. There's a lot, actually. One is we all have authority. We all have rules and, and hierarchies in God's world. And if we don't see them as good, we won't be able to exercise them in faith. So if you have a fundamentally egalitarian disposition towards the world, you're going to fail to operate well in God's world. So if you try to egalitarian your children and be their buddy, you're going to fail them 
right? You're not going to discipline. You're not going to instruct. Um, you have a certain sort of li very liberal manners, and they decided they would never tell their child in love. I can't think of a more unloving parent to take than that. He doesn't discipline you. He's not treating you as a son. God saying no to you is a sign of his love. The authority of God. Right? So we need to see these things as good so that we can exercise them in faith, but we also need to see them as good so that we can submit to them in faith. It's, it's very clear in And that, that crashes against our God in America as democracy. This is for all equal and higher. And the Bible, to me, one of the Bible's best um, descriptions of democracy is Torah's rebellion. If you're familiar with that story, where Torah gets upset with Moses and says, basically, who are you? Isn't everyone in, each, in Israel holy? You know, you're lording it over us, Moses. And he, he gets 250 leaders and challenges the authority of Moses and God opens up the earth and swallows them. That's democracy. And you're not the boss of me. We're all equal. Judge. Right. So recognizing hierarchy and authority is uh, important. Okay, so critical theory. A little bit more on critical theory. So I used an illustration from Robin D'Angelo. You might um, see that I should point out is also Italian, obviously. Um, so she's a critical race theorist, and, I, and she lays out four points of anti-racist education, and I'm using this because then we're going to turn it towards um, this issue. And if you know anything about this discussion, you know that under critical theory, critical race theory, the solution to racism is not colorblindness or equality of opportunity. or It's anti-racism, which is cynical partiality towards those I, they, they identify as oppressed. Okay, that's what it boils down to. And here she gives four conditions when she's teaching people about anti-racism. She says, racism exists today in both traditional and modern forms. The traditional would be the way people always understood it as um, sinful pride in your own race, or, or a sinful pride, there is a right pride, and then uh, sinful hatred towards those of other races. Right, that's more traditional. Modern is more about systemic systems. Okay. So there's racism. Second, all members of the society have been socialized to participate in it. And so she's saying, look, all of us, society has um, made all of us racist. Right. Third, all white people benefit from racism. That's talking about America, which has been predominantly white. Right. Uh, benefit from racism regardless of intentions. Intentions are irrelevant. It doesn't matter if you wanted to benefit from it or not. You, and that's where that phrase white privilege you might have heard, or there's male privilege, or there's, right? So white privilege is growing up in America, which has predominantly white history, 
uh, white people have structured society to their benefit. So Matt Chandler very famously used it, right? He said that he's, he's just had, it, it's at, uh, Peggy McIntosh wrote this article, Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack. She's the one who coined this phrase, white privilege, and, and Chandler used that. Uh, and I wouldn't say knapsack, but I have this bag of tools that I just, you know, I have because I'm white. You know. um, he talked about if he had to hire a pastor, he would go to the churches and he would say, look at the choice between a white eight and a Afro seven, those are the terms he used. I would take the Afro seven, but if it's an Afro six, I wouldn't take them because that would seem too much like tokenism. Right? Like this, this is pervasive. He was the head of X-29 at that point. And so that idea of white privilege, that you've benefited from the white racism that white people have structured society to their benefit. And then fourth, no one here chose to be socialized into racism, so no one's bad. Right? Not your fault. You didn't choose this. But no one is neutral. To not act against racism is to support racism. <coughs> so, so presumably she's saying you're not bad until she teaches you this stuff. And then, if you don't get on board with what she's saying, then you would be bad, because no one's neutral, right? If you don't go along with her, then you must be bad, so. Right. So now, take out uh, racism and put patriarchy, and take out white and put men. So patriarchy exists today in both traditional and modern forms. All members of this society have been socialized to participate in it. All men benefit from patriarchy, regardless of intentions. Intentions are irrelevant. No one here chose to be socialized into patriarchy. But no one is neutral. So not acting against patriarchy is to support patriarchy. Right? That, that's how that system would apply in, in this kind of thinking. And so that's, that's, uh, that's why men are, by definition, guilty until proven to be an ally to women. Just like white people are guilty until proven to be an ally to persons of color. You know, and you can just go down through the various categories they use, right? Um, heteros are guilty until proven to be an ally to sexual minorities. Just whatever, whatever category you want to use. Um, and, and notice that in doing this, they're, they're attacking this category of power. So I'll quote Seneca Whitmeister here. She says, from this pro-feminist perspective, sexism is defined as power and prejudice based on sex. It's not just prejudice, but it's power and prejudice. And that's what they the, uh, critical race theorists have done with race. It's not just are you, do you have sinful prejudice, but it's do you have power. Any power differential is a sufficient condition for abuse. If there's any evidence of power differentials, right? And this is the, the Asians are blowing up everybody's systems. Right, because they're outperforming everybody, and and they're not white, and they're not black, and they're, you know what are they, and who has the right? Are they oppressed or are they not? And what do we do with them? Yeah. Well, right. Yeah. I mean, the Ivies are discriminating against Asians, but it's yeah. right. Because they're performing the best academically. and they tend to not coincidentally have intact families. The greatest predictor of long-term wealth is intact families. And you destroy that, 
and you destroy Longfellow. The, the black family was stronger in the 50s than the white family, and therefore destroyed wealth is growing generationally. There's huge economic things at work on welfare because welfare incentivized not having intact families. It destroyed the financial well-being. Right? So, but that power and prejudice, right? Sinful prejudice is sinful. Power, having power is not sinful. What you do with power can be. But having power itself is not sinful. And so it's important that we, we see those things. Um, and then they define violence as any act that causes the victim to do something she doesn't want to do, prevents her from doing something she wants to do, or causes her to be afraid. You see how broad that definition is? Most of parenting would be considered violence under that definition, right? Uh, so causing children to do something they don't want to do or preventing them from doing something they want to do, that is parenting, right? Uh, I have a Gandhi quote on the next page, I think. Uh, Any attempt to impose your will on another is an act of violence. So, well, do you want me to believe that? That's an act of violence then, isn't it? You're imposing your will on me. You want me to believe you. How is that not violent? But to see just that power dynamic stuff is just shot through this, and we've all been affected by it. It's, it's hard to not be affected by it. You hear a story of an allegation against a powerful person. So I think in a um, society that cultivates envy, very hard to not be sinfully prejudiced against that person. Because they must be rich because they're powerful. So they can, right? The powerful, it, it is necessary. They can. you got to have power to abuse. But it's not sufficient. So, Augustine, Augustine talked about the order of amoris which is ordered love, rightly ordered love. And so that's why I said there is a, a right pride. There is a right, you know, depending on what you mean by there's right and sinful love. We, we should be partial towards our people. Right? I, I should love my wife more than any other wife. I should love my kid more than any other kid. I should love my nation more than any other nation, right? Like th there's a right partiality. I understand partiality is kind of a touchy, but, but you, you understand what I'm saying. And even Galatians 6, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. It's one of those verses that, that um, orients our diaconal ministry. We don't think about benevolence to anybody within however many miles radius, the same. We prioritize the church over the community. We would be disobeying scripture if we didn't, especially to those of the household of faith. So when Jesus said, he gave us the hallmark of Christian discipleship, he said, 
By this, all men will know you're my disciples by your for who? For one another. Not your indiscriminate love for anybody you happen to come across, but your love for one another. Even when you look at the love of God, God does not love everyone equally. I mean, look at the disciples. Did Jesus love everyone equally? I don't seem to have. John was the disciple that Jesus loved. But also, in Scripture, God has, there's a way in which God loves the whole world. But God loves his people with a special love. And we're, we're objects of a special love of God, which is how we became his people. He set his love upon us. And the love he has for his people is not the same love as the love that he has for the whole world. So there, we need to order our love. And ordering our loves actually helps us to think through our responsibilities, especially in a day where communication technology makes us more superficially aware of the world than any time before in history. You know, I grew up uh, watching MacGyver. And as I've watched some old episodes, I've realized if he had a cell phone, I, like what, 75% of his episodes couldn't have been aired. Because he would have been like, hey, I'm here, come get me. Right, but he can't do that. He has to do some improbable construction with his army knife and his duct tape and his wire that he found and you know, things in the playground. And, uh, yeah. So we have access to knowledge. We expect to know things instantly from around the world. And, and, uh, and ironically, we trust those. Um, I, I, I can't remember the name, and maybe you know the name of the preacher. Uh, they've labeled it where you read the newspaper and it's on a topic that you know something about, and you're like, that's not true. And then you read the newspaper on a topic you don't know anything about, and you just entirely believe it. You're like, well, that, that must be true. Right? And every time we've had an interaction with the newspaper at church, they've always misrepresented us. And yet I'll read the newspaper about something else and be like, oh, well, that must be what happened. <laughs> we get all this information from around the world, and, and we just operate on the basis of it. And then how accurate is it? And what lens is it being run through? And, right? and, and we're, so we're more superficially aware of outrages around the world, which tend to increase our sense uh, that the world is just you know, going to hell in a handbasket. And yet, if, you, if we would disconnect from some of that and just look at the world around us, we'd say, man, there's all kinds of good and blessings and things going on. And it's good to be aware. Right? I'm not saying just give a lot of but we live in an age that just kind of stokes perpetual short-term outrage. And there's these huge problems that nobody cares about. And, you know, um, and then we have to be aware that there's, there are agendas driving us. Trying to accomplish something. Um, and, and most of the time, the things they're trying to accomplish are contrary to faith. They're contrary to what God's written his word is for us. Um, and I have noticed that sometimes the people who are most invested in problems out there are having the least success in their own regular responsibilities in life. And so that idea of advocacy for a cause becomes a way to try and gain success, to try to accomplish something, to try to feel good about yourself when the things that you should be doing every day are not going well. 
I loved sports growing up. I, I gave an inordinate amount of time to sports. And uh, when the Lord worked in my life, because I recognized that could never satisfy me. Um, which ironically freed me to enjoy sports more. Because I, they weren't, there wasn't so much weight attached to them. Right? My, my, my existential joy did not go up and down with the fate of the Iowa Hawkeyes or the Red Broncos or whoever. Right? It was it's fun, but it's not it's not that important. Uh, rightly ordered love. That's the difference. Uh, and of course uh, we've talked about this, but I just put that note there for group identity. That's one of the um, important factors in it. Okay. Yeah, time's moving. Um So I, I called out three key problems through critical theory in the abuse world that I want to point out. So first is suspicion of authority. <coughs> right? If authority is a sufficient condition for abuse, then we should be that bad stuff comes from it. And I include a quote from the Holcombs who seem to be uh, genuine Christians who love the Lord and want to help people. But, but look at how they talk about men and women. So male privilege is a term that refers generally to the special rights or status granted to men but denied to women in a society on the basis of their sex. This position is problematic because it's oppressive. So if men have a status that women don't, that's oppressive to women. Right? Have we not been conditioned in that? It's not a biblical view. Women have statuses that men don't. I'll never be a mother. Thank God. <laughs> but but I'm, I'm grateful for mothers, and I'm grateful that I'm, you know, I, I, uh, I, I want my boys to rejoice in being men and being men. And I want my daughters to rejoice in being women and being feminine. That's how we should approach life. Um, and there's a glory to motherhood that I will never know. I have it um, experientially kind of curiously or you know alongside but not directly is that oppressive is the Lord holding out on me because I can't do womanly things is the Lord holding out on you ladies because you can't do manly things right now the difference is there is there are authority differentials right but it's important that we not this, this is saying that that difference is oppressive. And the Bible's saying, no, it's good. It's, what, it's how God made the world. So that, that would profoundly affect how you think about abuse. Um, I have some things on advocacy, advocacy there. I did, the, halfway through that paragraph, as pastor, 
I've witnessed far more unhelpful advocacy in the local church than helpful. The biblical category is busybodies just for reason. Such a person unhelpfully involves herself in matters that are not properly her responsibility, inserting herself with the ostensible desire to help, yet doing so illegitimately and thereby failing to fulfill the responsibility she has been given by God. Right, it's that question of, am I authorized to be involved in this situation? It's not enough to say, well, I have a desire to help. Or if you grew up like I did in the charismatic movement where there was all these spiritual gift tests, uh, you know, she's, she's a mercy, right? Meaning that she just leaves for everyone and can't bring any critical thinking to a situation to say, is this right or wrong? It's just, no, she just feels for everyone. She's an empath. There's none of that. Like, mercy is tremendous when it's in the right context. And when it's out of place, it causes all manner of harm. And so we have to think through it. Like what, what responsibility do I have before God? What will I give an account of to God? Who? And if I'm trying to take responsibility for something that the Lord doesn't give to me, that's a form of insubordination. Right? I'm getting out of order. With this big problem for everybody, I, I might have used this illustration, but you know, no doubt um, you have more than one child. Uh, you have one or more who view themselves as the police, right? And they're just, you know, mommy, you can't do that, right? But they're not the police, and they're not mommy, and they're not daddy, and whenever they try and take roles that aren't their role to take, does it ever go well? No, it doesn't go well for anybody. Because it's not their job. And the other kids know that. And you know that. And, right? and so they need to learn to entrust themselves to the proper authorities who can deal with them helpfully. Right? That's just a, a basic principle for life. So, and I think um, advocacy is used in a limited way in Scripture. Job, you can view Job as an advocate. There's certain ways. The, the, the person who are called to advocate the most are persons with authority or other strength. So um, wealth. Wealth is seen as a strength that's to be used for the benefit of others. That person is looking to be rich in good works, right? The king. The king is the person who's most responsible to advocate for the oppressed and the unjust. He's most responsible to give an account for the conditions in his kingdom where there's Husbands, fathers, pastors, like people who have various roles of authority are called to advocate, to look out for, and I think a better word than advocate biblically is friend. Because so often when people use advocate, what they mean is somebody to come alongside the abused and to pray for them. And a friend fills all of that biblically. Uh, the challenge I have with advocate is it usually sounds like you're dealing with a hostile person. And there's a place for that, especially legally. But I, I, if you're functioning within biblical understandings of authority, um, you don't, you're not dealing with a hostile person. You're dealing with a person that wants to honor the Lord and walk in righteousness. There's no need for you know, cards against it. Um, and advocacy can often get into this idea of liberation theology. Uh, and so I quote from Darby Strickland, who's down at TCS. God calls us to confront oppression, but also to provide protection and care for the vulnerable, 
we see Jesus doing this things, these things. He identifies with the powerless, takes up their cause, and stands against those who do harm to the vulnerable. At best, that's true in a highly limited sense. That's much more to do with liberation theology than biblical theology. Jesus did not come to identify with us with our oppression. He came to free us from the wrath of God. And our oppression is downstream of our rebellion. So we're not just these oppressed people who need a liberator. We're rebels who need a savior. And that can include liberation from oppression. Okay? Especially as uh, Christianity gets purchased from society and over time leavens it and society more and more reflects biblical values. But, but to speak in this kind of broad way sounds pious but tends to distort things biblically. Um, yeah. Because uh, we're running out of time. Uh, short-circuiting process, that would be my second concern, so that's an idea of the leave-all victim, which I think we've talked about. Um, so Darby talks about making a report of abuse, and she says, it helps to keep in mind it's not your responsibility to know or prove that a child has been abused, which is true. A report is not an accusation, but rather a request to investigate a situation. I think that's part of the sloppy thinking that leads to kind of the believe all victim. Right? So a report is not an accusation. Well, what is it? You're reporting what? You're reporting, I have reasonable cause to think abuse happened. That's an accusation. You don't have to say, I know it happened. I've investigated it. I know, you know, reasonable cause, that's the Pennsylvania statute. Okay. So you, you are making an accusation. <coughs> if you don't see that, then all those categories biblically just go out the window. Right? No, no, I'm just making a report. Oh, yeah, but a report of what? Of evil doings, suspected evil doings. And if you've ever been falsely accused, you know. Yeah, that's an accusation. Right? So, um, it short circuits process by kind of uh, introducing new categories. Uh, under Obama, the Office of Civil Rights um, famously released entirely new standards for dealing with allegations of sexual assault at campuses. And they, they went away from more biblical justice to a single party investigator, judge, jury, executioner, one person. And the accused rarely got the chance to face their accuser. And evidence didn't really matter. And it was, it was very much a critical theory approach to sexual assault. Then um, President Trump came in, uh, DeVos reversed all that. Then Biden came in, President Biden, and the same woman was put back in place. And now she's instituting those changes again. Right. So this framework of men have power, women don't, therefore justice means we recognize that young men, especially young college men, are basically oppressors and therefore they're guilty until proven innocent. It is a guilty until proven innocent system, okay? which is not the biblical standard. The other real danger with this is what I call Gnostic tendencies. And, and it's Gnosticism is basically we have secret knowledge that the elite has secret knowledge that regular people don't have. 
And, and that's one of the real uh, key tenets of critical thinking, is those who are in oppressed groups have insights that you could never have if you're not in that oppressed group. And that's why if somebody in oppressed group says that you were racist or sexist or whatever, um, the only thing to do is believe and affirm. Because you probably couldn't even perceive it because you're in the privileged group, right? Uh, and so in regard to race issues, uh, Bodhi Botham calls that ethnic Gnosticism. Uh, and then the flip side of that is ethnic antinomianism, which is if you're in the oppressed group, you're never held to account for what you do. You can get away with anything because you're the minority, you're oppressed. And so that, that's kind of this Gnostic, it's, it's a version of standpoint theory. If you've ever heard of standpoint epistemology, it's we all have this standpoint and, and, and knowledge is only from this perspective. We don't have access to knowledge outside of our own perspective, which is one of the reasons that scripture and the doctrine of revelation is really important because we have the God who has perfect knowledge and reveals his truth to us and sanctifies us in the truth and while none of us have God's entire understanding of anything, because he's eternal and we're not, we, we don't comprehensively know truth, but we do categorically know truth. What we know is true is true. Um, but standpoint theory says, okay, because we all have our standpoint, then those who are in the oppressed group, they, they have their own special um, knowledge, and so they have this advantage over the oppressed oppressor, and part of that is the oppressor only knows the world from their oppressor status. The oppressed knows the world from their oppressed status plus from the oppressor status because they have to live in the oppressor's world. That's why the oppressed know better than the oppressor. Right? And so they have this special nada. So mi minority status brings with it a presumed competence to speak about race and racism. So one of the temptations with that is uh, if there's a women's issue, uh, so let's say we're going to preach Ephesians 5, or, or, or we're going to teach about submission. Well, let's get a woman to do it, because she's in the oppressor group, and so it won't be perceived as the men holding the women down. Right? Or if, if somebody's going to speak to race issues, let's get someone who's an ethnic minority to speak to it because they're in the oppressed group. Right? So these people have a special access, meaning whatever group of oppression, do they have special access to truth that people who are in the supposedly oppressor group do not? Can I as a man speak, can I as a white man speak to racism? Right? Societally, the answer is no. Um, so, and, and what this means is that your lived experience, I have a quote here from Thaddeus Williams, his book, Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth, that's a pretty good book. He got it by Ola. He says, lived experiences must in turn become the foundations on which we rebuild everything from public policy and school curriculum to theological systems and church ministry. Questioning the narratives of the oppressed and the policies or theologies derived from them makes you the oppressor. Yeah, that's, that's the world we're, we're in. And 
I know we're a couple minutes over, but I want to point out these wheels quick. So on the left is the piling control wheel. We've discussed that a little bit. Uh, I know it's small, but I wanted to fit them on the page there. And you can see the pieces of the pie. So using intimidation, using emotional abuse, using isolation, minimizing denying, blaming, using children, using male privilege, using economic abuse, using coercion and threat. So interestingly, they use, for almost all of them, using, they point to these things more as means than motives, which is part of my argument. Uh, and you can see where many of these things can be helpful to understand. But some of them, uh, all of them have some effect through this critical theory lens. Uh, and by putting power and control at the center and saying that's the problem, that affects how you discuss. And then the solution, of course, is equality in a, a setting of nonviolence. And, and so part of how you can understand it is look at the alternatives. And so if, if uh, one of the categories, I think, is preventing her from uh, getting a job, What's the solution? Economic partnership. So, um, I do kind of things with a very high percentage of the provision for our family. That would be oppre oppressive in this picture. <coughs> right? Even though, and by provision, I mean dollars. Now, if you measure um, economic output, where we make massive contributions to our well-being. It's hard to put into dollar terms, but it's a massive contribution. But in, in this system, that's oppressive, right? Uh, negotiation and fairness. So we're not going to have leadership. We're going to negotiate in a position of equality. Non-threatening behavior, respect, trust and support, right? Sh a shared responsibility. So you can look at those things, uh, and next week, yeah, next week we'll look at my alternatives thing. But that gives you some ideas of how to understand. Any questions? All right. So we pretty much laid the groundwork for. Here's how the world's thinking about abuse. Here's the categories they're applying to it. Next week you're going to come and say, okay, how does the Bible talk about abuse? What I have biblical examples definitions, right? How do we think about these categories? Um, and then week five, Lord willing, we'll look at justice. So an allegation of abuse is made. How does biblical justice apply? How does biblical justice apply to a he said, she said? Right? How do we think about accusations? If it's, well, she said, she said, therefore we can't do anything, right? There's, there's more to it, biblically. So. All right, let's pray. And, uh,